I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 17 of Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to listen to the previous episodes, but you're welcome to stick around. I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. It's appreciated. And I have a favor to ask. If you know someone or meet someone who likes being outdoors, being outside, or being in nature, please tell them about Return of the Birds. It would really help our show take flight. Thank you. As to works on ornithology, Audubon's, though its expense puts it beyond the reach of the mass of readers, is by far the most full and accurate. His drawings surpass all others in accuracy and spirit, while his enthusiasm and devotion to the work he had undertaken have but few parallels in the history of science. His chapter on the wild goose is as good as a poem. One readily overlooks his style, which is often verbose and affected in consideration of enthusiasm so genuine and purpose so single. There has never been a keener eye than Audubon's, though there have been more discriminative ears. Nuttall, for instance, is far more happy in his descriptions of the songs and notes of the birds, and more to be relied upon. Audubon thinks the song of the Louisiana water thrush equal to that of the European nightingale. And, as he had heard both birds, one would think was prepared to judge. Yet, he has, no doubt, overrated one and underrated the other. The song of the water thrush is very brief. Compared with the philomels, and its quality is brightness and vivacity. While that of the latter bird, if the books are to be credited, is melody and harmony. Again, he says the song of the blue grosbeak resembles the bobolinks. Which it does about as much as the color of the two birds resembles each other. One is black and white, and the other is blue.
The Song of the Wood Wagtail, he says, consists of a, quote, short succession of simple notes beginning with emphasis and gradually falling, end quote. The truth is, they run up the scale instead of down, beginning low and ending in a shriek. Yet, considering the extent of Audubon's work, the wonder is the errors are so few. I can at this moment recall but one observation of his, the contrary of which I have proven to be true. In his account of the Bobo Link, he makes a point of the fact that, in returning south in the fall, they do not travel by night, as they do when moving north in the spring. In Washington, I have heard their calls as they flew over at night for four successive autumns. As he devoted the whole of a long life to the subject and figured and described over 400 species, one feels a real triumph on finding in our common woods a bird not described in his work. I have seen but two. Walking in the woods one day in early fall in the vicinity of West Point, I started up a thrush that was sitting on the ground. It alighted on a branch a few yards off and looked new to me. I thought I had never before seen so long-legged a thrush. I shot it and saw that it was a new acquaintance. Its peculiarities were its broad square tail, the length of its legs, which were three and three-quarters inches from the end of the middle toe to the hip joint, and the deep uniform olive-brown of the upper parts and the gray of the lower. It proved to be the gray-cheeked thrush, named and first described by Professor Baird. But little seems to be known concerning it, except that it breeds in the far north, even on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. I would go a good way to hear its song. The present season I met with a pair of them near Washington. As mentioned above, in size this bird approaches the wood thrush, being larger than either the hermit or the veery. Unlike all other species, no part of its plumage has a tawny or yellowish tinge. The other specimen was the northern or small water thrush. Cousin German to the oven bird and half-brother to the Louisiana water thrush or wagtail. I found it at the head of a remote mountain lake among the sources of the Delaware where it evidently had a nest. It usually breeds much farther north. It has a strong, clear warble, which at once suggests the song of its congener. I have not been able to find any account of this particular species in the books, though it seems to be well known. More recent writers and explorers have added to Audubon's list over 300 new species, the greater number of which belong to the northern and western parts of the continent. Audubon's observations were confined mainly to the Atlantic or Gulf states, 
in the adjacent islands. Hence, the western or Pacific birds were but little known to him, and are only briefly mentioned in his works. It is, by the way, a little remarkable how many of the western birds seem merely duplicates of the eastern. Thus, the varied thrush of the west is our robin, a little differently marked, and the red-shafted woodpecker is our golden wing, or high hole, colored red instead of yellow. There is also a western chickadee, a western chewink, a western blue jay, a western meadowlark, a western snowbird, a western bluebird, a western song sparrow, a western grouse, quail, henhawk, etc. One of the most remarkable birds of the West seems to be a species of skylark, met with on the plains of Dakota, which mounts to the height of three or four hundred feet and showers down its ecstatic notes. It is evidently akin to several of our eastern species. A correspondent, writing to me from the country one September, said, quote, I have observed recently a new species of bird here. They alight upon the buildings and fences, as well as upon the ground. They are walkers, end quote. In a few days, he obtained one and sent me the skin. It proved to be what I had anticipated, namely the American pipit, or titlark, a slender brown bird about the size of a sparrow, which passes through the states in the fall and spring to and from its breeding haunts in the far north. They generally appear by twos and threes, or in small loose flocks, searching for food on banks and plowed ground. As they fly up, they show two or three white quills in the tail, like the Vesper Sparrow. Flying over, they utter a single chirp or cry every few rods. They breed in the bleak, moss-covered rocks of Labrador. It is reported that their eggs have also been found in Vermont, and I feel quite certain that I saw this bird in the Adirondack Mountains in the month of August. The male launches into the air and gives forth a brief but melodious song, after the manner of all larks. They are walkers. This is a characteristic of but a few of our land birds. By far the greater number are hoppers. Note the track of the common snowbird. The feet are not placed one in front of the other, as in the track of the crow or the partridge, but side and side. The sparrows, thrushes, warblers, woodpeckers, buntings, etc. are all hoppers. On the other hand, all aquatic or semi-aquatic birds are walkers. The plovers and sandpipers and snipes run rapidly. Among the land birds, the grouse, pigeons, quails, larks, and various blackbirds walk. The swallows walk also, whenever they use their feet at all, but very awkwardly. The larks walk with ease and grace. Note the meadow lark strutting about all day in the meadows. Besides being walkers, the larks, or birds allied to the larks, all sing upon the wing, usually poised or circling in the air with a hovering, tremulous flight. The meadowlark occasionally does this in the early part of the season. At such times, its long-drawn note or whistle becomes a rich, amorous warble. The bobolink also has both characteristics and, notwithstanding the difference of form and build, etc., is very suggestive of the eastern skylark. As it figures in the books and is, no doubt, 
fully its equal as a songster. Of our small woodbirds, we have three varieties east of the Mississippi, closely related to each other, which I have already spoken of, and which walk and sing more or less on the wing, namely the two species of water thrush, or wagtails, and the oven bird, or wood wagtail. The latter is the most common, and few observers of the birds can have failed to have noticed its easy gliding walk. Its other lark trait, namely, singing in the air, seems not to have been observed by any naturalist. Yet, it is a well-established characteristic and may be verified by any person who will spend a half an hour in the woods where this bird abounds on some June afternoon or evening. I hear it very frequently after sundown, when the ecstatic singer can hardly be distinguished against the sky. I know of a high, bald-top mountain where I have sat late in the afternoon and heard them as often as one every minute. Sometimes the bird would be far below me, sometimes near at hand, and very frequently the singer would be hovering a hundred feet above the summit. He would start from the trees on one side of the open space, reach his climax in the air, and plunge down on the other side. Its descent after the song is finished is very rapid and precise, like that of the titlark when it sweeps down from its course to alight on the ground. I first verified this observation some years ago. I had long been familiar with the song, but had only strongly suspected the author of it, when, as I was walking in the woods one evening, just as the leaves were putting out, I saw one of these birds but a few rods from me. I was saying to myself, half audibly, Come, now, show off. If it is you, I have come to the woods expressly to settle this point. When it began to ascend, by short hops and flights, through the branches uttering a sharp, preliminary chirp, I followed it with my eye. Saw it mount into the air and circle over the woods, and saw it sweep down again and dive through the trees, almost to the very perch from which it had started. As the paramount question in the life of a bird is the question of food, perhaps the most serious troubles our feathered neighbors encounter are early in the spring, after the supply of fat with which nature stores every corner and by-place of the system, thereby anticipating the scarcity of food, has been exhausted and the sudden and severe changes in the weather which occur at this season make unusual demands upon their vitality. No doubt many of the earlier birds die from starvation and exposure at this season. Among a troop of Canada sparrows, which I came upon one March day, all of them evidently much reduced, one was so feeble that I caught it in my hand. During the present season, a very severe cold spell the first week in March drove the bluebirds to seek shelter about the houses and outbuildings. As night approached, and the winds and the cold increased, they seemed filled with apprehension and alarm, 
and in the outskirts of the city came about the windows and doors, crept behind the blinds, clung to the gutters and beneath the cornice, fitted from porch to porch and from house to house, seeking in vain for some safe retreat from the cold. The street pump, which had a small opening just over the handle, was an attraction which they could not resist, and yet they seemed aware of the insecurity of the position, for no sooner would they stow themselves away into the interior of the pump to the number of six or eight, then they would rush out again, as if apprehensive of some approaching danger. Time after time, the cavity was filled and refilled, with blue and brown intermingled, and as often emptied. Presently they tarried longer than usual, when I made a sudden sally and captured three that found a warmer and safer lodging for the night in the cellar. In the fall, the birds and fowls of all kinds become very fat. The squirrels and mice lay by a supply of food in their dens and retreats, but the birds, to a considerable extent, especially our winter residents, carry an equivalent in their own systems, in the form of adipose tissue. I killed a red-shouldered hawk one December, and on removing the skin, found the body completely encased in a coating of fat one quarter of an inch in thickness. Not a particle of muscle was visible. This coating not only serves as a protection against the cold, but supplies the waste of the system when food is scarce or fails altogether. The crows at this season are in the same condition. It is estimated that a crow needs at least half a pound of meat per day, but it is evident that for weeks and months during the winter and spring, they must subsist on a mere fraction of this amount. I have no doubt a crow or a hawk, when in their fall condition, would live two weeks without a morsel of food passing their beaks. A domestic fowl will do as much. One January, I unwittingly shut a hen under the door of an outbuilding, where not a particle of food could be obtained, and where she was entirely protected from the severe cold. When the luckless Dominic was discovered, about eighteen days afterward, she was very brisk and lively, but fearfully pinched up, and was as light as a bunch of feathers. The slightest wind carried her before it. But by judicious feeding, she was soon restored. The circumstance of the bluebirds being emboldened by the cold suggests the fact that the fear of man, which now seems like an instinct in the birds, is evidently an acquired trait, and foreign to them in a state of primitive nature. Every gunner has observed to his chagrin how wild the pigeons become after a few days of firing among them, and, to his delight, how easy it is to approach near his game in new or unfrequented woods. Professor Baird, footnote, then at the head of the Smithsonian Institution, tells me that a correspondent of theirs visited a small island in the Pacific, situated about 200 miles off Cape St. Lucas, to procure specimens. The island was but a few miles in extent, and had probably never been visited half a dozen times by human beings. The naturalist found the birds and waterfowls so tame that it was but a waste of ammunition to shoot them. Fixing a noose on the end of a long stick, he captured them by putting it over their necks and hauling them to him. In some cases, not even this contrivance was needed. A species of mockingbird in particular, larger than ours, and a splendid songster, made itself so familiar as to be almost a nuisance, hopping on the table where the collector was writing and scattering the pens and paper. Eighteen species were found, twelve of them peculiar to the island. Thoreau relates that in the woods of Maine, 
the Canada Jay will sometimes make its meal with the lumbermen, taking the food out of their hands. Yet, notwithstanding, the birds have come to look upon man as their natural enemy. There can be little doubt that civilization is on the whole favorable to their increase and in perpetuity, especially to the smaller species. With man comes flies and moths, and insects of all kinds in greater abundance. New plants and weeds are introduced, and with the clearing up of the country, are sowed broadcast over the land. The larks and snowbuntings that come to us from the north subsist almost entirely upon the seeds of grasses and plants. And how many of our more common and abundant species are field birds and entire strangers to deep forests? In Europe, some birds have become almost domesticated, like the house sparrow, and in our own country, the cliff swallow seems to have entirely abandoned the ledges and shelving rocks as a place to nest for the eaves and projections of farm and other outbuildings. After one has made the acquaintance of most of the land birds, there remain the seashore and its treasures. How little one knows of the aquatic fowls, even after reading carefully the best authorities, was recently forced home to my mind by the following circumstance. I was spending a vacation in the interior of New York, when one day a stranger alighted before the house, and with a cigar box in his hand approached me as I sat in the doorway. I was about to say that he would waste his time in recommending his cigars to me, as I never smoked, when he said that, hearing I knew something about birds, he had brought me one which had been picked up a few hours before in a hayfield near the village, and which was a stranger to all who had seen it. As he began to undo the box, I expected to see some of our own rarer birds, perhaps the rose-breasted grosbeak or bohemian chatterer. Imagine, then, how I was taken aback when I beheld instead a swallow-shaped bird, quite as large as a pigeon, with a forked tail, glossy black above and snow-white beneath. Its party-webbed feet and its long, graceful wings at a glance told me that it was a seabird, but as to its name or habitat, I must defer my answer till I could get a peep into Audubon or some large collection. The bird had fallen down exhausted in a meadow and was picked up just as the life was leaving its body. The place must have been 150 miles from the sea as the bird flies. As it was, the sooty tern, which inhabits the Florida Keys, its appearance so far north and so far inland may be considered somewhat remarkable. On removing the skin, I found it terribly emaciated. It had no doubt starved to death, ruined by too much wing, another Icarus. Its great power of flight had made it bold and venturesome, and had carried it so far out of its range that it starved before it could return. The sooty tern is sometimes called the sea swallow, on account of its form and power of flight. It will fly nearly all day at sea, picking up food from the surface of the water. There are several species of terns, some of them strikingly beautiful. 1868 You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. 
engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in this episode, and more. And one last note, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send me an email. Till next time, chirp away.